Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Well, good morning. Hey, y'all. How you doing? It's good seeing you. It's kind of dreary outside, but I guess it's going to be all right because last night Kentucky beat the third worst team in the country, so all is well. But uh, hey, so we got good news and bad news. First, the bad news is we've had multiple Sundays where families have come in here and had to turn around and leave because there wasn't room for them. Uh, 30 out of the 37 Sundays in 2023, we've had to close at least one classroom in Valley Kids and turn kids away because there wasn't physical space for them. So that's the bad news. That's, That's not the hospitable spirit of Christ, is it? The good news, though, is we are making room. Uh, We are building. You see construction happening across the street. We should have a new parking lot done in about a month-ish, and then we'll begin new construction on the new auditorium and worship center right behind here, and we'll repurpose everything in here for more kid space. So the good news is we're making progress. The bad news is now that's going to take 18 months of construction. And so for the next 18 months, we can't in good conscience continue to not allow people to have space in here and or kids back there. So the leadership has prayerfully discerned it's best for us to go back to three services. Many of you remember for years we did three services, then we came back to two in the hopes of building. Uh, It's a good problem to have, but starting Sunday, October 22nd, we're going to have three worship services now, 8 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 11 a.m., And uh, I know there's all kinds of responses to that. We typically don't like change. I don't like change. But I just want to say a few things about going to three services. First of all, this is a very good problem. It's awesome that we need to do this. God is blessing and moving, and we should be excited and celebrate that we have this need uh, to make more space. Secondly, it's only for a season until we get into our new facilities. This is not a death sentence for the 8 a.m. crowd, especially volunteers at 8 a.m. But third, it's going to take all of of us to pull it off. Some of you are already involved in volunteering. Some of you have not yet gotten plugged in. What a great time to do it, to pull off volunteers and valley kids and greeter teams and parking teams and coffee and everything in between for three services takes really all of us in this room working together. So I want to ask you to commit. Even if you're not a member, you're just checking the church out. What a great way to get involved. So we're going to have a volunteer training on Sunday, October the 1st. Uh, We will have a meal right after the second service, and then we'll break into groups for various ministry teams that you can sign up for at that time. And there's a QR code right there in the corner of the screen. You can take out your phone and scan that. And I want to encourage everyone that is not already volunteering, uh, if you are volunteering, come to that. But if you're not, please hop on board and do that with us. Uh, God is at work in our church. This is exciting times 
And I want to thank each and every one of you that are a part of it. Of course, we're able to build and create more physical space only because of your generosity. And so many of you are sacrificially and faithfully giving. Thank you so much. I know inflation is crazy, money's tight, but you cannot outgive God. And so let's, those of us who made pledges, let's keep giving generously. And if you've not yet been a part of that giving journey and you want to call PVCC your home, we humbly ask you to consider doing that. And uh, you're, you're really investing in something that will last forever. You can give online, you can give it the black boxes on the way out, you can mail in and drop a check, whatever you want to do, all right? Well, in 1992, it was the best-selling nonfiction book of all the 90s. It sold 15 million plus copies. Some of you have read it. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. So Dr. Gray, the author of that book, makes the case that the majority of relationship conflicts between men and women are because of psychological differences between men and women. And we all know men and women are different, not just anatomically and biologically, but we are different in terms of our convictions on thermostat control. Lord help us at the Edwards house. <laughs> Nothing probably has caused more conflict in our 18 years of marriage then whether the thermostat should be on 68 or 72 degrees when we go to sleep. Annie at 68 degrees likes it cold enough to kill hogs. I at 72 degrees would like to be able to send my kids to college one day and pay the rest of the bills. So when the lights go out at night, we literally sneak around each other to try to be the last to adjust the thermostat. That's true. Every night we're like, oh, I got to go get one more glass of water. Annie's like, shut up. You know what you're doing. Don't you dare touch that thing. We'll get up in the middle of the night to go use the restroom and go turn it up and down. It's crazy. Um, so we could all give examples of how males and females are different. And the Bible speaks to those differences. Differences are actually part of God's design for men and women. But at the same time, I fear that in our particular Christian subculture, we have often overemphasized the differences between men and women at the expense of our sameness. The culture tells us men are from Mars, women are from Venus. The Bible says, no, they're not. The Bible says men and women are both from the same garden, and they're both made in the image of the same God who created us equally to reflect his glory. And so stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. Like if you would, Genesis chapter one, we're going back to the very beginning. God said in verse 26, let us, we take that to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, that is men and women, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now just a quick thing to notice here. God is so holy and so glorious, the man alone was not enough to adequately display the image of God. Without the beauty and wonder of femaleness, there's a part of God we miss. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. So today's week five, um, confronting Christianity. And today's question is, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Or you might say, doesn't Christianity suppress or oppress 
women. Hannah Anderson argues that to biblically define a woman, we start with her humanity, not her femaleness. And she kind of humorously makes the argument. She said, look, if femaleness was the most important thing about me, I would have more in common with my female cat than I do my husband. So a right understanding of womanhood starts with a woman's humanity, not her sex. And that's what the Bible does as well, starting in Genesis chapter one. So go back to verse number 26. God says, let us, as Father, Son, Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look at the word man there in verse 26. In the Hebrew, that's in the plural, meaning more than one. Then the next verse, verse 27, we see that man, that general term, exists in two genders. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God uses the same general name, man, for both male and female. You see that again in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2. Male and female, God created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they, that is man, were created. Now, now track with me. This is kind of biblical uh, gender Theology 101. When God made man, he made a male man and a female man. Now, here's what we mean by that. This is why when we refer to all humans, we refer to what? Mankind or humanity. Now, that might sound sexist at first, but it's actually quite the opposite from God's understanding. The point God makes by using this language is that male and female are both man in that they have the same nature, and each of them are equally and fully human, and not one is superior to or inferior to the other. So I love what the 17th century Bible scholar Matthew Henry writes. You know, in Genesis 2, God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep, and God takes one of his ribs and makes it into the first woman. And here's what Henry writes about that. He says, the woman was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. Now here's the point. When the Bible paints a beautiful picture of the distinction between men and women and how we complement one another to carry out God's mission, that's not where the Bible starts, anthropologically or theologically. The Bible does not begin with the difference between men and women. It starts with sameness. So Genesis 1 and 2 is clear. Men and women are a lot more alike than we are different. And here's why I think that's important for today's question. Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Jen Wilkin points out, when we focus primarily or exclusively on our differences, our proclivity is often towards denigration or oppression. Now, we all do this. Think, for example, about Northerners and Southerners, right? Um, Southerners, we often look down on Northerners, because we say we're nicer, and we are. <laughs> no offense, but uh, Northerners look down on us Southerners because they say they're smarter. But the point is, the focus is on the differences, and a hyper-focus on our differences often leads one party to feel superior over the other. That's the root issue of racism, actually. 
Racism starts with a focus on you don't look like me. Your pigmentation is different from me. We're so different. And until Christ redeems us, because of all of our sin nature, our tendency, our tendency is to assume superiority over those that are different from us. And historically, both in and outside the church, a hyper-focus on the differences between men and women has led to, maybe even subconsciously, a superiority complex that many men have towards women. And there are countless examples we could give if I had time of this both in human and American and ancient history, for that matter. For example, I mean, the first 144 years of our country's existence, women could not even vote. So when we come to Scripture, though, from day one, God puts the man and the woman side by side, and he gives them together a commission to rule over and reign the world. So look at verse 26 again. God says, let them, that's man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then in verse 28, God blessed them, man and woman. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the call to subdue, to cultivate, to make useful, to rule and reign over all of creation is not given to man alone. It's not given to woman alone. It's given to both of them equally. And that's why Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man, in this case, he's referring specifically to Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him, and then God creates Eve. It was not good for Adam to be alone, but why? It wasn't because Adam was lonely. Adam had God. He was far from lonely in that sense of the word. It was not good for Adam to be alone because God's plan for the world could not be carried out by men alone. So in verse 18, God creates a helper for him. Now, sometimes when we hear God refer to the woman in verse 18 as a helper, we assume that's a subordinate role where the woman quietly pours a sweet tea and makes sandwiches while the man does the real work. But that term helper in verse 18 is not a term implying inferiority or uh, subordination. It's actually just the opposite of that. In fact, in the Old Testament, the only other person who is called a helper is God himself. In fact, of the 21 times in the Hebrew, the word for helper is used in the Old Testament. Twice it refers to the woman, and 16 times it refers to God himself. So by definition, the Hebrew word helper implies a deficiency in those being helped. Men, in Genesis chapter 2, we are the ones with the deficiency that need help. Genesis 1 and 2 does not paint the picture of a stereotypical, independent, macho man. Genesis 1 and 2 paints the picture of a needy man who is insufficient for the task of cultivating and ruling and reigning the world. Men, the Bible teaches that not only are we not superior to women, the Bible teaches we are, in fact, dependent upon women, without which we would grossly fall short in all the things God's called us to do. Man, that would be an appropriate time to say amen. Or should maybe we say a woman? 
if I'm going to be honest, I often feel uncomfortable as a pastor. Let me tell you why. Uh, because it's not uncommon for uh, people, for example, to maybe pat me on the back and say nice and encouraging things. Pastor Jameis, thank you so much. And I truly appreciate that. Every email or text of encouragement I've had for 17 plus years, I've saved every one of them. And when I get down, I go back and look at them to be encouraged. So I'm so grateful of any and all forms of encouragement. We all need encouragement. But attention and praise makes me uncomfortable because the truth is, I know in my heart, without Annie Edwards, I'm nothing. I'm on the stage. I get the spotlight. You all know my name. But Pleasant Valley is not what it is without her. And men and young men in the room, the same is true for you. Men, boys, you could not, you would not, A, survive, and B, be successful without the women God has placed in your life. Whether it's your spouse, your mom, your grandmother, your aunt, your sister, your teacher, your coach, your colleagues, your coworkers, your fellow church members. We are needy, deficient men and boys who are deeply dependent upon and indebted to the women God has placed in our lives. They are gifts from God that are to be honored and cherished as equals. And so may it be at this church that we create a culture where we give honor, where honor is due to all of God's daughters, because God loves his daughters a lot. They're his little girls, and every good father takes it very personal. If anyone mistreats or disrespects his little girls, and so beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, out of the gate, you see equality is the focus. While there are distinctions, it's not the focus. Sameness is. And then all throughout the scripture, you see Genesis 1 and 2 is a launching pad for the role men and women play in fulfilling the Great Commission for the world. Let me just show you a handful of examples of the central role God's daughters play in God's plans for the world. A number of these bullet points I borrow from Elise Fitzpatrick and Shoemaker's book, Worthy, which I commend to you. Just a few examples. The first time the gospel was ever preached was in Genesis 3.15, where God promised salvation to come through the offspring of the woman. So death entered the world through the man's sin. Salvation entered the world through the woman's womb. The first recorded words of faith were spoken by a woman. A woman, Eve, is the first person recorded to speak the name of Yahweh. The first recorded appearance of the angel of the Lord is to a woman. The first character in the Old Testament to confer a name on God, the God who saves, is a woman. The first declaration of unconditional election is made to a woman, Rebecca. A woman, Miriam, is the first person recorded to dance and worship as she composed a psalm for Israel to commemorate their escape from Egypt. The faith of a woman, Rahab, was crucial in the conquering of the first city in the promised land. A woman, Deborah, rose up to lead Israel during the period of the judges, providing wisdom and courage for the entire nation. A woman, Esther, she saved the nation of Israel through the bowed faithfulness inside of a foreign palace. Then you get to the New Testament. You see, the declaration of God's ability to do the impossible is in regard to what he would do through a young virgin woman first. Women, Mary and Elizabeth, are the first to believe that Jesus and his forerunner, John the Baptist, would be conceived. A woman, Elizabeth, and her child in utero are the first recorded people to recognize Jesus' arrival. A woman, Mary, composes the first hymn of the New Covenant age. A woman, Anna, is the first to speak publicly and broadly of the arrival of Jesus. Jesus. 
A woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the first to expect and request a miraculous sign in Jesus' public ministry in John 2. A woman, the Samaritan at the well, is the first recorded Gentile to whom Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. And Jesus' conversation with her is the longest recorded conversation Jesus has in the Bible. In fact, Rebecca McLaughlin reminds us, quote, the portrayal of women in the Gospels is stunningly countercultural. This is a fascinating study. Christianity does not denigrate women. Christianity is the greatest thing to ever happen to women because Jesus came and saw men and women as equals. Jesus did not look over beyond the woman to get to the man. Jesus treated women with dignity and respect. The first century culture was male-dominated in every way, but Jesus went against all the cultural norms. And Jesus interacted with and served directly beside women all the time. Luke tells us who was in Jesus's inner circle. Look at what he writes in chapter eight. He says the 12 were with him. That's the 12 apostles. But we often forget it wasn't just Jesus and the 12 male apostles. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, Susanna, and many other women who provided for them, as Jesus and the apostles, out of their means. So in fact, in all the New Testament, did you know, men, that it's only women who are said to give general, regular financial provision out of their own means to Jesus and his mission? It was a woman, the wife of Pontius Pilate, who's the first person to declare Jesus's righteousness during his trial. Women were the last to stay with Jesus at the cross, along with one disciple, John. It was a woman, the mother of Jesus, who's the final person Jesus directly ministered to before he died. Women were the first to go to the grave after the Sabbath. Women were the first believing people tasked with proclaiming the news of the resurrection. Women were the first to see and enter the empty tomb. Women are the first to see the resurrected Jesus and also the first to touch his resurrected body. It was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who's the first to hear the resurrected Jesus's voice. The first name Jesus utters after he's raised from the dead is a woman's name. Women were the first to worship the risen Jesus. The first sermon preached in the New Testament church declared that both sons and daughters in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy would receive the Holy Spirit, and both men and women would prophesy. Then the apostle Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 11. He encourages women to pray and prophesy in the public gathering to build up and encourage both men and women. It was the mistreatment and neglect of women, in particular widows, which was the impetus for appointing the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. It was a woman, Priscilla, along with her husband, who corrected Apollos, who was a prominent male preacher, and taught him the way of God more accurately. And notice, no apostle comes along and tells Priscilla to go back home to the kitchen and to leave the theology to the men, as some well-known preachers have been known to do today, namely one on the West Coast. A woman, Lydia, was the first in Europe to believe the gospel and be baptized. A woman, Lydia, was the first in Europe to provide hospitality for the apostles on their mission and to host the church in her home. In fact, of the six churches that met in homes of named people in the New Testament, three of them met in single women's homes. Of Paul's four greetings that include specific women, a woman's name is listed first in three of them. 
In the most pivotal, crucial letter written in all the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul includes nine women among the ministry partners that he lists at the end of the letter that played a huge role in helping spread the gospel throughout the early church. And of all the people to deliver this most important letter in the New Testament, arguably, Paul chose a woman. Her name was Phoebe. Romans 16 says she was a deacon at the church of Sincrea. Phoebe traveled 800 miles by sea and land to deliver the letter. But only does she deliver the letter from Paul to the church. It's very likely, scholars tell us, she would have been the one to initially read the letter out loud to the congregation of men and women. And here are the words Paul wrote in that letter about Phoebe. In chapter 16, he says, speaking to the Roman church that received the letter, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. Welcome Phoebe in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Welcome this sister as a saint. Treat her as a saint. Notice what Paul does not say about Phoebe. Paul does not say they were to look at Phoebe with suspicion as one who was trying to take some man's position or usurp her authority. They were not to ask Phoebe why she wasn't at home cooking or cleaning. And they were not to view Phoebe as a temptress to avoid. So I want to sidestep for a second and address something. Men, we are talking about our sisters in Christ whom we can and should treasure as friends. We can have meaningful conversations with our sisters and we can give our sisters eye contact without it being weird. One woman wrote to men these words. Men, let's listen well. Please don't think that if a woman is friendly and wants to engage you in conversation, it's because she's hoping for a sexual relationship. The vast majority of women I know really don't want to bed you. Man, it is disrespectful to God's daughters when we fail to acknowledge or greet our sisters in a room avoiding eye contact with them, looking past them, or saying hello to their husbands without acknowledging they're standing right there. Also, men, let's man up and stop blaming women for our own sexual lust and perversion. Yes, the Bible speaks to modesty, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 3, for example. But the Bible also teaches that the root problem, men, of our lust is not her dress or her yoga pants. Men, the root problem is our sick and perverted hearts. How many men have foolishly said, well, if she didn't want me to make sexual remarks, she shouldn't have worn that dress? Those are the words of a fool. How many people have defended rapists When the rapist says, well, after she went this far, how could she expect me to stop? Even how many church ladies have whispered, well, 
if she wouldn't have gone to such and such place, that wouldn't have happened. She kind of asked for it. No, she didn't ask for it. No woman ever asked to be abused or taken advantage of. While we're on this subject, young men especially, stop making comments about how hot young ladies or other women are. A woman's value is not connected to her body size or her external beauty. She is not an object for your gratification that you get to rate based upon what she looks like. She is a daughter of King Jesus. And brothers, it would behoove us to speak about his daughters with dignity and respect as though Jesus were in the room, because he is. There's no such thing as locker room talk. And though the most powerful man in the world on record spoke of his abuse of women and then later wrote it off as president, oh, it's just locker room banter. That's demonic and evil. And finally, stop looking at pornography. Stop it. Because porn is the sickening objectification and online abuse of women. It is propagating the sex trafficking industry. Stop it. It's not every man's battle. It's hellacious and demonic. That's somebody's daughter you're looking at. That's somebody's mom. What if it were your daughter? What if it were your mother? And a brief word for ladies. Ladies, if you are dating a man or involved with a man who doesn't treat you with dignity and respect, you deserve better. If he does not honor you as an equal, if he lets you pay for everything, if he picks on you because of your body size or because you put on some weight, if he sits in the car while you pump the gas, if he plays video games while you go to work, if he can't hold down a job, if he tells you you'll sleep with him if you really love him, if he's ever hurt you or laid a hand on you, you kick his rear end to the curb. I don't care who he is. I don't care who his mom and dad are. I don't care if he teaches Sunday school. Nobody, and I mean nobody, has the right to harm you. Nobody gets to abuse you. It doesn't matter if you've been married to him for 40 years. Nobody gets to punch you. Nobody gets to throw things at you. Nobody gets to scream at you. Nobody gets to slam you against the wall. Nobody gets to choke you. Nobody gets to physic physically intimidate you. Not your husband, not your boyfriend, not your fiance, not your father, not your grandfather, not your coach, not your uncle, nobody. And if this is happening, please reach out for help. As difficult as that may be, and you have my word and all of your church leadership's word and this church's word, that we have your back. So all that to say, when we look at the account of Phoebe in Scripture, Paul says, welcome her as a saint. You see that true biblical Christianity does not denigrate women. It values women immensely, unlike any other religion. So when you look at the biblical account, particularly the New Testament, it's no surprise that sociologist Rodney Stark shows that textual and archaeological evidence show the early church was primarily and majority female. 
The same is true today, by the way. The majority of Christians are women. But it's historically shocking, considering that at that time, their Greco-Roman culture was overwhelmingly male. For two reasons. Number one, selective infanticide of baby girls. They didn't want to keep the baby girls because they thought men were superior. It was their own version of abortion. But then also the massive number of maternal deaths in childbirth. So there were a lot more men than women in those days. But still, the church was primarily female. In fact, early Christianity was mocked by outsiders precisely because it appealed so much to women. You know, there's often talk and concern these days about what some have called the feminization of the church. And I can see that argument to some uh, in, in some cases, for example, the worship song that has the line, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. Yeah, my Papa Stalins would not have sang that at East Tatey's Baptist Church growing up. So I, I get some of that, I really do. But as Elise Fitzpatrick writes, the Apostle Paul didn't seem too worried about girly churches. But he honored the women who were willing to give their whole lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, fast forward 2,000 years to today. Today, the International Mission Board, the largest mission-sending agency on planet Earth, says that for the missionaries to go to the hardest, most unreached places, the most dangerous countries, closed and hostile to the gospel, where you can be imprisoned or killed for preaching the gospel, female applicants outnumber male applicants for those mission trips four to one. Women are far more willing to die for the gospel than men are in the country or the world's largest denomination. Thank God for those fearless women, but where are the men? For the last few years, Iran's underground church is the fastest growing church in the world. You know who's leading that movement? Women. The same thing is true for the incredible church growth in the Church of China largely led by the women of God. Here at Pleasant Valley, we have an incredible volunteer base. Nearly two-thirds of our volunteers are women, and we're so grateful for that. But men, I want to challenge you. How many of us men come and fill a pew on Sunday morning, and that's it? That's something, but it's not manly. At the same time, I agree with J.D. Greer when he writes, quote, he says, there's a myth alive in certain parts of the church that men do the real and significant work of ministry, and as such, men should be taught deep, rich theology and leadership principles, that men's gifts should be recognized, called out, celebrated, and even paid, while women's ministry should be mainly about how to match the curtains with the pillows, how to use the Enneagram to diagnose your relational difficulties, or how to identify new clients for your essential oils side hustle. Not that there's anything wrong with some of those things as hobbies, just that some approaches to women's ministry acts like that is all there is for ladies. So let's talk about that for a moment. Both the Old and New Testaments teach there are certain positions in the church God has reserved for men. For example, in the Old Testament, women could not be priests. In Ephesians 5, Paul goes back to the book of Genesis and Paul says that because of the pattern God laid down in creation, men should carry the burden of spiritual leadership in the home. And in 1 Timothy, the Bible says this pattern also means that men should bear the responsibility for primary leadership and teaching in the church expressed in the office of pastor elder. 
Now, as we learned from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this distinction in role is not because of superiority or inferiority. The Bible teaches men and women are equal in value and essence. And so that equality is not threatened or compromised by God-ordained distinctions in selective roles. At the same time, however, one of the many problems in our circles today is that we've spent way too much time focusing on the one thing women can't do in the church and all the things they can do. And outside of the office of pastor, there's not a single role a woman can't have or a single gift she can't use in the church. And it looks different for every woman. Every gift is just as important as the next. For some women, their primary wiring is oriented towards nurturing. They thrive perhaps most in the context of the home. They're uniquely gifted often, maybe in the care of the elderly or the vulnerable. They often excel in hospitality. Maybe they operate in the gift of encouragement or counseling, for example. For other ladies, maybe their primary gift is faith and mercy, and maybe you won't see them on stage as much, but they live that out by getting on their knees in prayer and pouring out their hearts before God and their pillars in the church. You know, in some Christian circles and churches, there's a myth, though, that if a woman's not in the kitchen or in the bedroom, she's out of bounds. If she's not nursing a baby, sweeping the floor, baking a pie, she needs to know her role and go back home where she belongs, some would say. But in Scripture, we don't see that at all. In Scripture, we see God has wired many women with gifts of leadership, administration, teaching, prophecy. Some of the most crucial players in the New Testament were women who used leadership and entrepreneurial gifts to build significant wealth. And they used that money with their gift of generosity to finance and fund Jesus' church planting and missionaries. As it relates to the home, God calls some women to work primarily in the home. God calls other women to work outside the home. God calls many women to do both. We see that clearly in Proverbs 31. The excellent wife in Proverbs 31 manages her household well. At the same time, she's out buying and selling property and making business deals left and right. And we have amazing women at this church that fall into each of those three categories. And ladies, whatever role God has for you in this season, and often it is seasonal, your heavenly father sees you. And I just think this morning he wants you to know that he's really, really proud of you, whatever your role is. Because no matter what cultural stereotypes do or don't say to what you're doing, you're his daughter and he's very proud of you. So it looks different for every woman, but here's the point. Pleasant Valley, we will never be healthy and thrive as a church until both our sons and daughters are able to thrive, operating fully in their gifts and calling. But one of the greatest failures in many of our churches is that too often we've only had one perspective at the table. Too many of our churches have been single-parent churches. And not enough have we allowed the voices of God's daughters to influence and shape our church family. And to the extent that we've done this as a church, we've been wrong. Because different backgrounds bring different perspectives, and different perspectives can help us avoid blind spots as a church. 
I agree again with J.D. when he writes, quote, I can't help but wonder if the sexual abuse crisis that now plagues the national church might have been avoided or mitigated at least if more of those sitting around the table had experienced knowing what it's like to be vulnerable or to have your voice silenced. Pleasant Valley, we, like a lot of churches, have a lot of work to do, don't we? Women of God, we love you, and this church does not exist without you. We need you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the way you serve this church. Thank you for the way you love well. You, like Phoebe, are to be treated with dignity and honor, worthy as a saint. And so we say thank you. Let's bow our heads at this time and I'd like for us to have a time of prayer in particular for the women of God in our church. I'd like to ask our music team, if they would, to come forward and also our ministry team members, if, if they would, to go to their places. As we do every Sunday, I'll be standing down here at the front. We'll have ministry team members on my left and right on the floor and back by the back doors wearing lanyards. They'd love to pray for you. You can slide out of your seat at any point in time during this next song. They'd be happy to pray for you. But also, before we sing, I would love to, as a pastor, have the chance to pray for the women of God here this morning. So in just a second, and there's no pressure at all, of course, but ladies, if you would in particular like to receive prayer, I'd like to invite you, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, just to stand up in a moment. And by standing, you're saying, you know, I would love prayer this morning. It's going to be my joy to pray over you. And others in the room will be praying as well. Here's a few areas, perhaps, you're like, hey, I would love prayer for this. Maybe, ladies, you would love prayer for wisdom in, in dating relationships, Maybe you're navigating, has God called me to be single? Has God called me to pursue marriage? Maybe, ladies, you would love wisdom and health for your marriage if you're married, and you like prayer for that. Maybe, ladies, you would like prayer for your children or grandchildren. Maybe, ladies, you're, you're dealing with anxiety or depression or just heavy stress at home, at work, and you'd love prayer for that. Maybe, ladies, you would love to pray for the Holy Spirit to pour out his spiritual gifts on you. Maybe you have a desire to teach. Maybe you have a desire to do various kinds of ministry in the church or in the home, and you just love prayer for that. Maybe, ladies, you just want prayer for God's general wisdom for your life. What should you do? Where should you go? How does God want you to use your gifts and talents? You're, just, you're trying to discern what's next for you in this season. Maybe some of you ladies, you're feeling a call perhaps to vocational ministry. Some of you are thinking about, should I go to Bible college? Should I go to seminary? Should I give my, should I, should I go overseas? Ladies, perhaps this morning when I spoke of going to hard places where we have a huge shortage of missionaries, you're like, you know what? I, I could go to Iran. I could go to Iraq. I could go to China. 
I could go to North Africa. I would love to go preach the gospel. But you're discerning that. I'd love to pray for you. So if you would like prayer for any of those areas, I'm gonna pray for each of those things specifically by name. Ladies, would you just stand at this time? Would you just stand that I would love to pray over you? And again, ladies, if you would like more personalized prayer, you've got ministry team members again to my left and right, men and women and also at the back who would love to pray with you or You know, maybe you're in a relationship, ladies, that you think you need to get out of and you need a safe place to talk about that. I'd encourage you to go to one of our lady minister team members and if you're most comfortable, they could even lead you outside of the room here. We have a private room where they could go speak with you and pray. Every head bowed, nobody's looking around. You could go ahead and do that now if you need someone safe to talk to. We'll give you a moment or two to do that. Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name, and God, I give you thanks and praise for your daughters. Father, this church would not exist without the women of God. Father, it is their prayers, it is their faith, it is their courage that started this church years and years ago. Father, help those of us that are men to honor, respect, dignify, to treat your daughters as saints, as Paul says. Lord, to the extent we've not done that well, forgive us and help us to repent. Forgive us, Father, as men for any superiority complexes. Grant us repentance. Father, I pray for every single woman in the room, oh God, that her value would not be in marriage or even children, but that, Father, she would know you love her just the way that she is. And God, I pray for wisdom for our single ladies, Lord, those that are wrestling with that, some that desire to be married, others they're not sure, Lord, lead them, guide them, give them wisdom in Christ. Father, I pray for every woman who is standing or just wants prayer for her marriage. Lord, if the marriage is cold, if the marriage is struggling, if there's conflict, God, give grace give grace, give peace, give forgiveness, give love, bring healing to every marriage represented. Father, I pray for every woman who has children or grandchildren. God, your blessing over those kids for their safety, their protection, most of all that they would know and love Jesus, that they would make wise decisions, protect them from the abuses of drugs and alcohol other things that would bring harm to them, protect them. Father, I pray for all of the ladies, young and old and alike, that are battling anxiety, depression this morning. Lord Jesus, speak your peace and your comfort into their hearts and lives. Lord Jesus, for those ladies that are longing for the power of the Holy Spirit, they desire to minister 
They desire to share the gospel. They desire to be a thriving part of the body of Christ. Lord, pour out your spirit upon them. Anoint them to make disciples, to share the gospel. Father, I pray for every woman in this room for wisdom for this stage of their life. Father, whether they're in high school thinking about what they want to do in terms of career or family or next steps, or Lord, they're the middle school girl that's, her body is changing and she's just trying to figure out where she belongs, how you've made her. Lord, give grace and wisdom and identity in Christ. Lord, for other ladies who are in a, a new season of life, maybe empty nesters for the first time, and they're trying to figure out what's next. God, for all of those ladies who in this season have moved their babies off to college for the first time or maybe for the last time, and Lord, there's an emptiness they feel, I pray your blessing and your comfort over them. God, hold them and help them to know they're good moms. They're good moms. They did the best they could and you love them. And their prayers, though their kids may have moved far away, the mother's prayers can reach all the way around the world. God bless and encourage them. And Lord, for any women or young ladies in the room who are wrestling through a call to perhaps vocational ministry, seminary, missions, whatever that may be, God, give them discernment and clarity. God, may they know that you can use them powerfully to proclaim the gospel around the world. And so, Lord, may we as a church come alongside and help them and support them, help equip them. Father, anything I've not thought to pray, all of the unspokens, all of the hidden things happening that are sensitive and hard, God, be merciful May the women of God in this room know their identity is not in their body type or size, but in the righteousness of Christ. They are covered in the blood and the mercy of Jesus. And in Jesus's eyes, they are perfect because they're hidden in Christ who died on the cross for their sins. And they are righteous before God and they are daughters of King Jesus. And may we celebrate them as such. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together. Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.